Welcome to Fathering Excellence, the podcast where fathers of accomplished people share insights on what they did to equip their kids to achieve their goals. This episode, I'm excited to be talking with Darrell Madison, whose children include Alexander Madison, running back for the Minnesota Vikings. In high school, Alexander was the embodiment of a student athlete. He ran 2,000 yards in both his junior and senior years, learned to speak Spanish fluently, and graduated with a GPA of 4.7. At Boise State, he was a Mountain West student athlete and had over 2,800 rushing yards in his junior year, after which he entered the NFL draft and was selected by the Vikings. Alexander is off to a strong start with the Vikings with a touchdown and an average of over 4.6 yards per carry in his first year. Alexander's father, Darrell Madison, is a great guy. He's a veteran, a cancer survivor, and an amazing father. In this episode, Darrell explains what he did to help ensure that Alexander excelled in school and how he led by example when it came to academics. He also talks about how he supported Alexander's passion for football and the counsel he provided when it came to the college decision. And Darrell talks about how he and his wife welcomed help to raise their three boys. Help from close family members, friends, and a barber named Q. I'm Jonathan V, and this is Fathering Excellence. Well, Darrell, thank you so much for joining us here today. Greatly appreciate it. It's really an honor to talk with you. And I'd really like to start with what would seem to me as a father to be a particularly special moment. As you think back to 2019, could you tell me where you were and how you were feeling in the third round of the NFL draft when your son Alexander was drafted to the Minnesota Vikings? It was a, a surreal moment for, I think, everyone leading up to it. He had been training in Arizona. As he was training, we'd stay in contact. I'd normally call him on Sundays. And as we got closer to the draft, I initially wanted to have like a big, big thing for him. Since uh, where we're coming from and from San Bernardino, a lot of our friends and people that's helped to be a part of it. And he had came to me and said uh, that I would really prefer just to do something smaller. He said, because I know I'm going to be emotional, I'm going to be going through a lot of different things, and I, I wouldn't want people that aren't intimately in our family involved. So we ended up doing it at my sister's house with about maybe 20, 25 people, of course, close family, uncles, my sister, his cousins, my friends, his barber, people that were, to me, were intricate in helping mold him as well as me and my wife. But I think the, the key thing with Alex was he was so calm, and I couldn't... I couldn't get it because I, I couldn't sleep. I was nervous. I was going through all these different emotions. And I'd walk past his room and he'd be snoring. It, <laughs> ga- it gave me comfort in that. What actually happened was I spoke to his agent. Basically, what he had said to Alex was it's about a 15 percent chance that you'd go on Friday. So we'd already blocked off Thursday. I mean, Thursday figure and he wasn't going to go first or second. I mean, first round. He said, Mr. Madison, I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. It looks like it might it's like a 15% chance that he'll go in the in the third or fourth round on Friday. So I said, uh, okay. And I talked to Alex about it. And Alex's thing was, as he was going through football and, and school, he was always told 1% of, of y'all will make it to the NFL. To Alex, in his eyes, he said, I was always told I was going to have 1% chance of making it to the NFL. So 15%. Sounds like a win to me. <laughs> and so <laughs> that was his attitude going into it. So as we sat there, you know, all our family, we were cooked food and everybody's fellowshipping and, and enjoying the moment. As the second round went on, we knew where he was ranked at his, at running backs. But it doesn't matter 
where you're ranked because if they need a bigger back, a smaller back, depending on what they already have. As the teams that he had already met with started picking other running backs, we started getting a little uneasy. I remember getting into the third round and a couple other teams had picked the running backs. So I started feeling uneasy because in my mind, this is my son. We have all these people here. I knew regardless he would go Saturday, but that's not what I wanted. I, we're all here today. In my mind, I wanted to happen today in front of his family and loved ones. And it got towards the end of the round, and we're looking at the teams that were left. And so I said to Alex, I said, uh, did you talk to the Vikings? He said that at the combine, I spoke to them once, but they never called, never followed up. We never heard anything else about them. So the teams that we had spoke to, whether it was Chicago or the Chiefs, teams like that, they had already picked a running back. Actually, I, w- I got up and I went in the bathroom and I actually prayed. You know, and I basically was saying, you know, Father God, don't let this day end without my son experiencing this with his family and friends. We came back out. We were sitting next to each other on the couch. And I, after I'd asked him about the Vikings, and I said, well, if they're going to pick you, they should be calling now because they call you prior to it being announced on the TV. And right about that time, the Vikings disappeared from the, the pick. They were gone. And then maybe three, four minutes later, they came back in. So they had traded out the round and decided they were going to come back in to get Alex because they figured they wouldn't be able to get him the next day. As soon as we said that, the phone rings. You know, we're listening to him talk. But sitting on that side and watching your son's dream start, so everyone, the tears already started at this time for everyone. He's crying. So, of course, you see your son crying. You're automatically going to cry, too. (laughs) (laughs) So they got some very horrible pictures of us. Um, from that month, from that time. So then after he hangs up, everybody erupts. We're all excited. You're getting all these emotions out. And then literally four minutes later, you now have to quiet back down so you can hear it on the TV. Mm-hmm. So as we sat there and waited for them to actually announce it on the TV and you heard his name, that is the epitome to me of accomplishment, not as a father, not because you're going to the NFL, whatever my, my children would have done, I'm proud of. But his dream was to do that from early on when he, from six. And my key thing with football is you can be talented, but in my household, you have to have good grades. It doesn't matter what, what the school says you can play football with. You're not going to play with a C in my house. And I don't care how good you are. That was established early on. And me and his mother always made sure that's what happened. So if he hadn't finished his homework by the time football practice started, he would sit on the side and finish his homework before he could go into practice. But it's, so, but you're not going to play and not do what you're responsible, I mean, required to do in our house. Because, you know, football is fun, but there's injuries. There's so many things that can happen that can derail a dream, but they can't take your education from you. That was most important in our house was always education first and everything else second. They were, you know, so coach would be like, well, he's real good. Well, he hasn't finished his homework, so he's not going to be able to go to this or go to that. And what Alex understood was if it's something that you really want to do, then what are you willing to do to get there? So if my requirement is my grades, then I'm going to make sure my grades are where they are so I can always do what I love to do. And then when he graduated high school, we had a 4.7. Yeah, so people always ask, did we always think he was going to go to the NFL? And to me, it's not that wasn't something that you hold stock in. I'm not saying that it's not, not doable, but when you say I want to be a fireman, I want to be a police officer, I want to be a lawyer, those are things I know we can make happen. when it's Something like football, I'm like, I didn't say no, because anything that my children decided they wanted to do or try, we'd feed that until, you know, they did soccer, they did baseball, they did football, boxing. So whatever they did, we fed it until that's not what they wanted to do anymore. Football stayed consistent. 
I'm actually a veteran. So in California, they have, if you're a child of a vet, a disabled vet, they'll pay for any Cal State or UC for free. That's terrific. They'll pay for your tuition and they'll do your books. So I explained to them because we didn't have a lot of money. So I said, if you actually want to go to a different university outside of California, your grades are what's going to get you there because you're going to have to get a scholarship. When the time came on, he started getting all these offers from these different schools. He actually went to go visit Boise. And I remember him calling me and saying, Dad, I want to be a Bronco. All these opportunities were coming, but he said, Dad, I don't want to go anywhere else. If I'm going to do it, I want to start here. And I would never want to be the dad that said, no, you're going to go here. And something happens. And then you you always regret it or look at me like, you made me go here when I did. And I've always trusted Alex's decisions as being wise when he decided he wanted to do something. Our family, we really didn't look at, I'm going to say, NFL until his uh, sophomore year. That season, then it started feeling more within our grasp. That was my main thing. So even when there, his, his main focus was still his grades. So he still was always on a roll in, in Dean's list at Boise as well. The day of the draft, that was the most important part, was just watching my, my child's dream come come to fruition in front of us and, every, and everybody, being, everybody being there to share it. I imagine. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Thinking back to when the boys were young, what was it that you and your wife were doing and, and how would you describe your household? I was living in Dayton, me and his mom, and I, I was young and wilding and doing things I shouldn't have done. My sister called me and said, you really should get out of Dayton because there's nothing there for you. There's nothing positive going on in Dayton. At the time, the GM plants had closed down. There were, you know, so it was a lot of jobs being lost and it just didn't, it wasn't working. Pearl, my wife, she was actually even pregnant with Alex when I decided I was going to go. And so I told her it was 1996 that I was going to go and I was going to sleep on my sister's couch for about three months, get a job, get us a place, furnish it, and I'll be back in February to pick you and the boys up. I remember her family said, well, I don't think you're coming back. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing that coming up, I was raised by my grandmother predominantly. I did live with my parents at different times and with my dad, but it was often on a sporadic. And so I always felt that, yes, uh, uh, my grandmother, she raised us, so you can raise a man, but I still feel like it, you, you need a, a man or, or, or a father figure, uncle, someone that's going to be that, that male voice, the yin to the yang of your, your mom or your dad. I actually moved out to California, actually caught a Greyhound in California and worked, got everything furnished in that February. I came back and packed up all our things. They flew out and me and my friend drove all our stuff back out to California. And Alex was born actually in June, June 19th. So our household, me and um, his mom both worked and worked alternate schedules. Like she was Sunday through Wednesday. I was Wednesday through Saturday. They received equal time for both of us. So when she was at work, I had the boys and and nurtured and did what I could. And then and then it got to a point where we were both working all these hours because we were working two jobs each where we couldn't, the childcare basically was a, a check, a monthly check for, and I, I said to my wife, I said, well, it just made more sense if you just stay home with the boys and then I'll work. And by doing it that way, it gave her a chance to, to nurture and give them the, the love. I was more, not necessarily authoritarian, but I worked in group homes. So I saw what, kids who didn't have someone to guide them, they ended up with us and what they were going through. So my my focus from that, because I had never heard of a group home before I moved to California, was to make sure that my kids were going to go down that path. Any of those things that normal kids, they felt their, their friends were doing, me and my wife wouldn't allow because there's no reason a 12 or 13 year old should be out after midnight at some house. And same way with my wife, if they had friends, my wife always went over there and met their parents before they could spend the night. So we did all those things that 
we felt were necessary. And I think the blessing was that me and my wife were both from Ohio. So we had the same Midwestern home upbringing. We never bumped heads with the way we parented. We were pretty much raised the same. So we knew how we were going to raise our kids. Mm. And we had that conversation early on. That's great. When we were young, growing up, our cousins were our first friends. You know, that's who I modeled and patterned myself after my older cousins. The key thing with me and my sister was we're going to make sure our kids, whether it's fishing, whether it's camping, they're going to do all these things together. As cousins, they're very close. They actually have a, it's called MB5, which is Madison Bradley 5, because we have my three and her two. And they're close-knit to this day. That's, that was the main thing. So family first was always, well, God first, then family. And that's what we went through. So I actually had um, got cancer. And during that time, I couldn't work. And the thing that was so crazy was, since I was the breadwinner, the one that was working, my whole time in the hospital, I'm not thinking about getting better. I'm thinking about, I need to get out and make sure that my family's taken care of. And that's when my sister and my cousins, they stepped in so that I can get better. But during that time, there wasn't a lot of money. We actually lost our, our, our home right then and actually stayed with my sister for a few weeks until we got another place. So they experienced a hardship. And the, the important story was when I remember Alex's birthday came around and I said to him, I said, what do you want for your birthday? And he said, Dad, I know we don't have a lot of money right now. I don't need anything. And I said, no, it's your birthday. You're going to get something. So he said, well, just, just give me a skateboard. And I learned early then that my children had learned, A, to be humble and to appreciate everything that you get. And that's why now, as he excels in the NFL, it's, he's still the same humble person that he was prior to it. That's wonderful. I'm really curious about, you mentioned that you and your wife were very in sync in terms of your approach to parenting. I think you also mentioned that you you and your wife had a conversation early on. Was that about about how you wanted to approach parenting? And, and what did that sound like? The, the conversation actually happened once we got to California. When the twins were born, we were still young. I think I, might, I was 24. And so we were still in our, our heyday. But once we moved and understood that life doesn't change because you move somewhere else. Life changes because you change. So if you're an alcoholic, there is a liquor store in every state, right, that you can still go get a bottle of liquor. It's not going to stop you from being an alcoholic because you went from Ohio to California. So when we got to California, we had to understand that if our life was going to be different, we had to do different things than we did in Ohio and that everything we did directly affected our children. If we argued and we were loud, they heard that. You have to be mindful of all those things when you're raising them. So our, our goal was, what do we need to do to do it? So I, I think what it ended up being was our we talked about it and we made structure for our kids. So. If you got up in the morning, you still took a nap at from 1230 to 1 30. You ate lunch at, at, at 12 before you laid down, things like that. So it was a structure, it was a plan. And they always understood when it, what time we were going to take a bath and what time we were going to start getting ready to go to sleep. Video games. You could only play video games Fridays and Saturdays. The rest of the week, you could read books, do other things. But video games were reserved for Friday and Saturday. Sundays, you do board games with the family or things like that. So they always had a structure. They always understood what was necessary. You got your haircut every two weeks. So it was just common things that they became accustomed to. It made us easier. So you didn't, you don't have the problem of when you're in Walmart, your kid grabbing everything off the thing or throwing a tantrum and laying on the floor because he can't get something. Our kid, we didn't have those problems with them because of how we structured everything. So they understood 
a look or a walk or when they went to school, parent teacher day, when you first go and meet the teachers, we always, they gave them my cell number and my, my mom's cell, I mean, my wife's cell number. And if you have any problems with our kids, feel free to call us and you won't have that problem the next day. So the teachers understood that they had someone at home doing it. And then the key thing is kids go to school to learn, but when they get home, you have to reinforce what they've learned. And my wife has a spirit of doing that. So she's always helped children. She's tutored. She's ran children's programs. So it was easy for her when they came home to make sure that they got into pattern and that they were doing their homework before they ate first. And then we go into homework before TV or anything else. And my sister was a, has her master's in mathematics. So whenever it was math, something I wasn't good at, my sister always came through and she was there to help them, help them learn that. So even that with me going to school, I had went to college, but I had stopped. But as they got into high school and I saw them getting ready to graduate, it was important for me to graduate from college before they graduated high school so that they understood that we have to finish what we start. So you were going to college part time. How did that start? And, and how were you how are you balancing all of that between work and college and being an engaged father? When I first moved to California, I started and I took maybe a semester, a year. I took a year, actually. And then, as I tell my kids, life happened where bills were happening and I I couldn't go to school full time and pay. So maybe 10 years went by before I went back to school. And it was just at a point, like I said, I, I made a conscious decision that whatever it was going to take for me to, to graduate before they did, because I wasn't even concerned about walking. And it was funny because my sister, I, she was like, when I was getting my AA, she said, are you walking? I'm like, for what? I'm going to get my bachelor's. She's like, no, your, your sons need to see you walk. Your sons need to see you graduate both times. That fueled me when I was actually trying to get to Cal State. And I, I ended up taking algebra for summer, which is accelerated, which I should have never done. So <laughs> <laughs> actually was failing algebra. The instructor came around. He said, well, you know, you have to make a decision if you're going to drop the class or not. So this is where your, your percentage is now. And this is what you need to do to get it. And I remember calling my sister and telling her, like, I think I'm going to drop this class and just do it again. She said, no. So she would come, we would take our lunch breaks from work together and study. She would come to my house after work and we'd study and my, my sons would see that so that I, I accomplished that, got my A and moved on to, to Cal State. But it's the drive that I wanted Alex to have. You need to see it. If you don't, I could tell you, you know, plenty of things to do or what I do. You know, parents always say, do as I say, not as I do. That doesn't actually work because your kids are going to mimic you regardless of whether you want to or not. That was important to me to make sure that I, I did that for, for them, for all my boys to make sure that they knew that they can accomplish anything they do. And I, and I, and I still feel like that, that. Like my son now, he wants to be a police officer. He works full time. He runs a Starbucks store and he goes to school. So it's, it, he saw it. So he, know, he knows it's doable. Mm-hmm. Well, you must be very proud of him to see him continuing to aspire to achieve his goals and yes. following that example that you set. So that's why I wasn't worried about Alex going to Boise because I knew embedded in him already. So I, you don't have to be over him to make sure he does that. Another thing that was funny about him was with football, I would literally come in the room and maybe the Xbox would be on, but he wasn't playing it. He was having the, the computer play and he was just studying the defenses. Or, you know, when he was doing his homework, sometimes me and my wife would have to come in there at one, two in the morning and tell him, okay, you need to go to sleep. He'd be like, no, I just need to finish this last assignment. Or you come in there, but he, and he always fell asleep with a football. In high school, you really knew where, where his head was, but he, uh, he was very focused. That's wonderful. You touched on cancer, and from what I understand, it was leukemia. Is that correct? Yes, it's a hairy cell leukemia. 
It's, a, I guess, rare. It happens to about 800 people a year. Nothing you could have did different is a blood cancer. So basically, my white blood cells were gone. Um, it started off with pneumonia. And I was in the hospital maybe two weeks before they found out what it was. Then when they said it was going to have to be an aggressive chemo where it's a, actually put a pickler in your arm and it's for seven days, 24 hours a day. And I remember the first night that it started, I, I let my boys come see me for the first week and a half, maybe two weeks. And it started feeling like I wasn't going to leave the hospital. And that's when I let my wife bring them up to see me. And by then I had lost 20 pounds, 30 pounds. And so they were scared too. I remember the first night of chemo, I called my sister like four in the morning. And I said, no, nah, I can't do this because it was painful. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. So I told my sister, no, nah, I couldn't do it. And it was actually right after my mom had died, my father had died. And so my sister said, you know, your boys need you and we've lost so much. And it shook me and it shook me back. And I, I was able to complete it because of that knowing that the boys needed me to still be there. Well, I'm glad that you're still here. It sounds like it was a full recovery. Yes, yes. It's been 10, 10 years this past January. Oh, that's a huge milestone. Yes, Congratulations. Yes, it is. I was fortunate and I, I was you know, blessed to go through that. Now, looking back on it, because I now, I live life knowing that it can't be taken for granted. I had lived my life prior to that experience where I felt almost invincible. Like nothing could stop me or nothing and I feel like the Lord sat me down to tell me, you need to think about other things and be prepared. It humbled me. It gave me a new redirection of, of my life and what I needed to do. And as far as my voice as well, because I didn't want them to ever have to you know, live without their father. Your kids shouldn't bury you at 10 or 13. Yeah. Yeah. No, agreed. So you did an amazing job, it sounds, of switching gears here, of establishing the importance of academics at an early age. How did you approach that? Were you putting structure in even even before he got involved in sports? Well, you look at it, he started at six. So there's not a whole bunch of time where he, he didn't already have that structure because from kindergarten on, seven, eight, nine, you're doing homework. And then as you got older, once you got to, to high school is where I, I speak on they don't care about you as far as your education. In Ohio, actually, right now, you can actually play football with a 1.0. Wow. That's a gym class. That's a, So they don't care about you short of what you can do for them. And that's what I had to make him understand. Nothing's going to be given. And we're not, not in a situation in our life where we can give you everything. So therefore, you have to be willing to go out here and get it. And you have to show them that this is what's important to me. It has to be important to you. It could be important to me and your mom, but it has to be important to you. And once it's important to you, you'll do whatever is necessary to make sure that you you accomplish that. Mm-hmm. You know, even now he's, he's going back to finishing his degree now. So he, he's taking online classes from Boise now because he said, that's, I'm going to finish my degree. It's it's him. It's like I said, from six on, I've never, it's, uh, his mom, we put him in a raffle. We tried to put all the boys in a raffle, but he was in first grade. So he actually was able to, to go dual immersion, which is Spanish and English. So half your day you're doing in Spanish, the other half you're doing English, whether it's chemistry, whether it's math. By the time he graduated high school, he was a native speaker and fluent in Spanish. So he understood the importance of that too, that you need to be bilingual in society where everybody's a melting pot and it sets you apart from everybody else. That's fantastic. The dual immersion. So that, that a charter school? Well, there was only three schools in San Bernardino that did it. So there was the, the elementary, then there was the middle school, and then the high school. 
which is why he ended up at San Bernardino, because the better high schools were elsewhere that wanted him. But he said, you know, I want to finish Spanish. I won't be able to do it at another school. It's only San Bernardino that does it. That, that does it. But it does have a, a stigmatism to it. They didn't have a good football team. They didn't have a, a good education system structure. But they did do well, like with honor students. So now you're in all these honors classes. So you're getting the good teachers and you're good at getting it regardless of what school you're at. And then I remember my barber telling me when I was telling him, no, I want him to go to this school or this school. He said, if the numbers are there, anybody will come. They'll come. The schools will come. By him going there, by him excelling, by the universities coming there and looking for him, it's helped the other youths in San Bernardino because while they were there, they went and looked at other schools. And now they're constantly coming in, checking out the students. That's terrific. What were your, your philosophies or your approach, your wife's and your approach to discipline? We were, you know, we got whoopings when we were young. I think my difference with it was because, you know, we did the standing in the corner. So if you were going to get a whooping, it'd have to be something pretty bad. But even if you were going to get a whooping, my thing was you got three, three hits. And and then I would ask you first before I happened, I said, do you understand why you're getting a whooping? And then they would say yes. And then after they got the whooping, I would say, so what did you learn? And then they would explain this, that, and the other. Now, Alex, on the other hand, Alex might have gotten three or four whoopings, period, because he watched his brothers and he knew everything not to do. And so when I say he was easy as a child, from eight on, he was easy. My thing was once they had their cell phones, if you didn't do your chore before you went to school, I had the sprint at the time where you can go on and cut off the internet and everything. And, and the only phone call they can make is to me. So when they get to school and they go to make a phone call, I say, hello. And they'll say, what I, what I forget. I say, you figure that out. But for the rest, <laughs> of, the, <laughs> for the, rest of the day, <laughs> you'll be calling me. You can call me and you can call 911. Cause you know, as you get older, but as you get nine, 10, 11, I'm, so then you have to find out what they want, what they like, what they appreciate. Then those things you take away and then they'll correct the behavior that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great. Oh, I love that. When was it that you felt that Alex really had some potential with football? It's From what you were saying earlier, it sounds like he had a passion for it from a very young age and got engaged with it, and that it wasn't really until maybe in Boise where you felt like, okay, NFL is... is it's realistic. Was there a time in between where you're like, all right, he's right, he's got some chops here. This is some uh, flame that we should fan. Definitely, I'm going to say eight. He did the first two years, and it was maybe four or five running backs on the team, so they kind of split them up, and Alex might get two or three carries a game. And then I remember him coming to me and saying, Dad, I want to play more. You know, I can, I can do what so-and-so does, too. You know, they had their little star running backs. And I said, well, I'm your dad. I can go tell the coach. I want you to get more playing time, but I sound like every other dad out here that says they want their kid to get more playing time. I say, you have to go and tell the coach that you want more playing time. And then you stand next to him. And so anytime he looks somewhere, you're already standing there. And that's what he did. And if through high school, if you look, Alex never took his helmet off. Always was standing somewhere by the coach. And it was funny because he was still doing the same thing at Boise when he first got there. And the players had to start telling him, go sit down like, or, or go over there. Because that's that's his mentality was if you see me, you're going to put me in the game. Mm, and so that's smart. Once he started excelling, it was people would come and see him, and 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 you would notice that I considered him a man amongst boys because he would run through everybody. 
And it would take three, four people every time. This is at nine and 10 and 11 to bring him down. Wow. Were you someone that knew a lot about football? Well, I played one year of football, like junior All-American. And I remember getting my bell rung. And I remember, then I looked at the, the ref and I said, is that legal? And, they, they, <laughs> and once they said yes, I said, well, I don't think this is the sport for me. So I loved watching football. You know, I, my wife actually played football for a minute. So she actually did a lot of drills with them too, as far as that goes. So it was really a combination of me and her helping him learn his passion. And Alex never didn't have a football. And so what we did was when he was young, I mean, his mom would tell his brothers that whenever you get a chance, just try to steal the football from him. So where they were in the barbershop or whatever, he'd be sitting there with the football. His brothers would try to grab it from him. So that taught him <laughs> that taught him how to hold on to the ball. And I think that worked well because I think he might have had uh, two fumbles his whole college career. Those type of things, the small things, really helped. And then I had a friend who actually played for the, the Jaguars in his sophomore year. He actually had Alex doing all the normal football drills. So we would go up there on weekends and work out four or five hours with him. That's wonderful. Is there anything in particular that you you recall that he got out of that? I want to say, yes, I, I will say that it's a, the bottle was when the, the third and fourth quarter come is when you're you're getting stronger while they're getting tired. So the drills that they would, that my friend would have him run were endurance drills. So when the third and fourth, if, if you watch any of his games, that's when you start notice that defenders don't want to tackle because while they're getting tired, he's getting stronger. So third and fourth quarter is when Alex is always at his best because he's he's conditioned to endure. Once it became snowy and, and wet, that was when you have to hand the football off. You can't throw it. And he was ready for that because of the training and how he conditions his body. Were there other specific individuals that come to mind who helped you and your wife with raising your boys? Well, my barber, they've had, they had the same barber for, from the time they were two. You know, he constantly, he was an older, he's older than me. So he constantly instilled different wisdoms for them, or he'd talk to them. Or if I was telling them something that we were dealing with, he would back me up or reconfirm what I was saying to them about what, what they needed to do. Or when they thought I was wrong because I wasn't letting them go to a party or hang out, he explained to them why we were doing it. Because sometimes you just need someone else outside of your voice to say the same thing you're saying. And it's, it, they take that anymore. Alex was never a partier anyway. So that was, that was easy. Doesn't drink now, doesn't smoke, never did drugs. He was always focused. He was, you know, he's had the same girlfriend since 10th grade. And so he was grounded and focused. But my sister, my barber, my brother-in-law, which is my sister's husband, were intricate. And, uh, and then also um, our pastor, Clyde Stewart, he was, Alex was very involved in the church. That, but my sister, my brother-in-law, and my barber and pastor, I'd say, are, are a big part of the village that, that really helped. Is he still your barber? I'm in Texas now. So whenever I'm in California, yes, he will always mean That's my brother. He was at the, uh, the draft party. And for over 20 years, he's been a person that I can count on to do that. And he was the person where if I was at work and my wife needed to come take the boys to get their haircuts, she could drop them off and leave and let them have that environment of the barbershop with these men that spoke into them as well and know that they were going to be all right while she went and did what she needed to do. That's fantastic. Can I ask what his name is? His name is Quentin, but we call him Q. That's their Uncle Q. Today, I'm his Uncle Q. 
when Alex got into high school and it seemed like he would be pursuing a possible career in football, or at least at the college level, I have no idea how that works. Are, are there things that you need to do as a parent or that a, a child needs to do to start preparing themselves for that possibility? Are there people that you needed to engage with or get advice from? The key thing is, and, I, and, I, and this is from learning it, we were all over the place as far as how you go about getting your child to a Pac-10 or a, a Division One college to play football. We had even, uh, I think there's a program called NCSA or something, literally like $1,500. And they're supposed to get your tape in front of Division One head coaches and all this. None of that happened. The fact is that he put in the work. He had a coach that actually reached out to universities. And once he started, you know, his junior year, he had a 2,000-yard season. So automatically, his going into his senior year, people wanted to see what he wanted to do. And by then, he got I think he got his first offer right before the start of his uh, senior year. And that's where, I, that's where I learned because that coach actually came and said to us, well, now that I've uh, – offered, you're going to get a lot more offers. So we got a few more started trickling in, but I learned that coach actually had called Alex and told him, you know, that he was being ungrateful because he hadn't made a decision on where he wanted to go and they had offered first. So I remember Alex telling me that and I said, well, call him and tell him you're no longer interested in that university and give a scholarship to who you'd like to. That's the thing that the parents have to know, that the questions to ask the coaches. Because they'll come and they'll sell you a dream on what we're going to do. They can't promise you a spot. They can promise you a scholarship, but they can't promise you you're going to play your first year, your second year. All that, if they're doing that, more than likely, you're going to be lost in the shuffle. You have to find a school that cares about the children, not just what they can do on the field, but academically as well. And Boise State, with Coach Harson, they put academics first. They're not one of those schools that offer you money because everybody assumed when Alex went to San Bernardino that we had got money or something because there's no way he should be a San Bernardino. No, he decided he wanted to be there. Same thing with Boise. People was like, oh, did the school give you this or this? No, they gave us nothing. They said, we will allow him to compete. If he comes up here, we will give him the opportunity to compete for a spot. That's all I can promise you. By that, I knew that when he made a decision to go to Boise, it was going to be the best for him not only football-wise, because they do produce a lot of good running backs. And you want to make sure whatever the, like, he's a running back. So you want him to go to a running back school. And, you know, and that's how he ended up going to a good Division One school. Because there's a lot of Division One talent, but either their grades aren't good. Because when, when coaches come to schools, they don't come to right to the field to watch you. They go to your attendance office first. They see what your grades are and if you come to school. If you don't do those two things, there's nothing they can do for you. Mm. So you want to make sure that the requirements, find out what the requirements are. What what GPA do I need? What did I need on the ACT? What did I need on the SCT? And that's what we did. We did our background on what was needed. And and, the, and he checked all the boards, which is what the Vikings said. They said when they met him at the Combine, he checked all their boxes. So they already knew that that's who they wanted, but they didn't want anybody else to know they wanted it. That's why they never called him again. Interesting. How would you describe fatherhood, being a parent, after your kids have left the house? How did that relationship change? How are you continuing to engage with your kids? It was harder in the beginning because my twins, when they turn 18, your kids turn 18. They're not grown. And that's where people get mistaken. Just because you turn a certain age doesn't make you mature, doesn't make you any of those things. So you still have to parent after that. 
if Alex was at school and he had a question about scholarships, funding, or any, or if I want to do this, he still calls me. Same with my, my other sons. They'll call me to ask me certain questions because you're, you're still dad. They're still, it's still mom. That, that role never changes. You have to learn how to release a little more because I, I you know, I, they were 18, but I still wanted them to be my babies and they weren't. And they were growing yeah. into men. So I have to let them be men. But at the same time, I understood that we're still naive at 18 or 19. People could still hoodwink us and tell us certain stuff and we believe it in our gullet. So as long as I'm, I'm breathing, my sons will call me and ask me anything. And I, I plan on always being here as long as God gives me breath. That's fantastic. I wasn't planning on, on asking about this next topic, but since I first reached out and now the world's changed, there was the horrific killing of George Floyd, which really was, was one of, of many other types of events that led up to that point that triggered a lot of the protests that continue to go on now. It's somewhat encouraging to see that there are so many people involved in trying to find a way to push for durable, long-lasting change. As a father, were there conversations that you needed to have with your kids about race relations? The George Floyd thing was a bubbling overpoint. But being raised in Ohio, I've dealt with racism. Um, I've been spit on and I've dealt with a lot of things. So I had a lot of animosity towards because Ohio was, was black and white. There was no difference. So when I moved to California, I had never seen a, a Hispanic person before. I never had a taco. I never had a burrito. So it was a culture shock for me. But being in the military and going different things, you meet so many different people and from so many different walks of life that by the time I became a father, a lot of the stereotypes and things I had dealt with growing up that had anger in me was softened because I got to know people who were just people. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we broad stroke a lot of things when we're kids because that's all we know. Being in, in California where it's a melting pot of so many different people, you know, Alex's girlfriend is Hispanic. My other son's girlfriend is white. So they always say, whatever you don't like, you'll have in your family. So you have to learn to love everyone. So my kids already knew that you treat everybody the same way. If you can say, oh, I got some white friends or I got two white friends, if you're counting them, you, then, then no, you don't. You understand what I mean? Mm, so right, right. like one of my, my good friends in California, I know that by us becoming friends the la- over the last four or five years, his view of black people changed because he wasn't raised around them. Or when he did live around them, they bullied him and beat him up. So that gave him a different look on black people. So I understood where he was coming from. But after this George thing, he said something that was really deep to me where he said, I've never had to pray over my kids for protection or different things like I know that you've had to do over your sons. And I think only once did my children have any police interaction. And when I found out, I was so upset because they were just standing outside of the barbershop and the police came up and had them sitting on the, the, the curb telling them, you know, well, y'all look like somebody. He had them out there 15, 20 minutes. That was his first interaction. That's when my son decided he wanted to be a police officer. But as a father, I wasn't there. And I felt like I wasn't there to protect my sons. And so I understand that concept totally. But my sons understand that everybody's equal. So that's why given this platform now, Alex speaks out because that's how he was raised. I told him, you don't, you don't have to be quiet. That's the thing about the education part of it. If they take the NFL away from you, or you couldn't do it when that was, it was that time. You have education. 
you'll have something else to do. But you don't bite your tongue when you see someone else being oppressed. And that's that. And so now when he speaks up, the one thing I always say to him is never be silent. Whatever it is that you need to vocalize, be vocal. But if wrong is wrong for anyone, and I don't care who it is or what color they are, if you see someone being done wrong, then step in. That's right. Yeah, that's terrific advice. It, it reminds me of something I heard recently from somebody who said it's not enough to not be a racist. We have to be anti-racism, and it's different. It's, it's the only way that change occurs. If we, it's easy to be silent. I remember uh, being in eleventh grade, and there was a guy pumping gas, and some boys from my high school were—I think they had punched him maybe twice. And I was coming out of Seven Eleven, but the thing that struck me was that he had his five, six-year-old daughter with him. He was, a, he was a white white guy. And so I went over and said, had him stop. But it wasn't because of anything, because this child looks up to her dad. Why would you do this to this man with this child here? It's something that will scar her. And so she might not like black people, not because they ever did anything to her, but they watched what happened to her father. Mm. It's different things it's always, it could be one major thing that changes everybody's trajectory of where they're going. Well, I feel like we're all like ping pong. I mean, a, a pinball. If you, you know, you go this way and you get hit by the flipper, you go that way. But you might not have went that way if you got, didn't get hit by the flipper. When I was mad when I was young, when I'm at the playground and a, a, a white boy spits on me from up the, up the, the thing, those things resonate. So for a long time, my, my, my mind was the same way. They don't like us. I don't like them. Until I, I, I moved to California. We lived in an all-white area, and all my friends became white, and they're just like me. But being in Ohio, where we grew up at, it's an all-black neighborhood. You only see you. The only time you saw white people was on TV, or if you were at the doctor's office or something. But but you're not engaged. You're not interacting. I'm in Texas, and I I I, I you know I get vibes. I get different things. But that that's not going to change how I treat the person next to me because I know who genuine people are and who who love you unconditionally, regardless of anything like that. So I'll still say hello and keep it pushing. If you don't say hi back, no problem. But I won't be a reason that people look at black people as a whole and say, that's why I don't like black. Right. In addition to that, are there things that at a bigger picture level that you feel needs to be changed in society? I would say the way we respond. And, and for the most part, I'd look at that as, as a black people is when something happens. And that's what I like about what's happening now. So often before it had been black people, we got together, we decided we were going to try to protest and there, or, or, or say something and nobody else from the other nationalities were concerned. And the th- one thing that I hated was we would we would go hard for something for a week. And then the week after, we don't think you don't hear about it no more. It's still people dying. So at this point in time, it's the consistency of what we do. If a month from now, we're not talking about it anymore because it's, it's something else going on then it, nothing was accomplished by this man's death. Mm-hmm. So it's the consistency in everybody being involved. When I've seen the protest or I go to a protest, when you see everybody united against something, not these looters and, and the other stuff, I'm just talking about the ones that really want to see change for no other reason than it's right. Then that's that's where the, the change comes at. If people say, well, you know, white people might do it out of convenience now. No, it's people that, that were raised with my sons that are my son's age that grew up with, you know, with everybody and they don't have that same hate or anger towards black or Hispanic or Chinese people that we might have had in the 70s or the 80s. As that grows, as these type of people get involved in it, then everybody, then you'll see the change in it. 
but it has to be everybody. It can't be one group of people. You know, if, if you were gay and you're protesting about equal rights, but it's only gay people, people are, are, are listening because you're only hearing yourself. But when you have non-gay or, you know, transsexual or whatever it may be, that all come together and do something, it's not one. You can't ignore everybody. Right. And you might be able to reach somebody that I couldn't reach because you're around them. You know, and I can reach people that you might not be able to to, to to share my views on how it is. And once that happens, once everybody's voice is involved, that's where you see the change. You know, people sit and say, with the statues being taken down, someone had posted, well, why ain't they taking this Obama statue down? And I, I don't care about a president's statue as far as whether it's Obama or somebody else. But if it was a genuine slave owner, just like the Confederate flag, what I get when I see the, conf- the Confederate flag is mostly racist people. As I've ran into when they ride past me in the trucks and, and flick me off or they got the flag going through side. So if something is hurtful to someone, you know, Obama's statue is not hurtful to anyone. You know, he, didn't, he wasn't a slave owner. You know, so that's where I look at it. At. You know, I love the Dukes of Hazzard when I was little. I didn't know what the Confederate flag was on the, on the General League. I didn't I didn't know anything different. I didn't know not to like the Confederate flag. But as I got older and I saw what what. What a lot of times it, it meant to other people. Oh, it was a time where, you know, my uncle had slaves and I wish that time would come back. Why? Things like that that don't make sense anymore. Hmm. And that's, that's just how I look at it. it. And people say forget or move on. If nothing's literally, you know, changed or we can, we can live different places and not, it's still places that, that black people can't go live in. I, you know, in North Dakota or South Dakota, you know, where the, the black woman's house got egg when she moved out there. It still happens. So if it's still happening to one, it's happening. We just had all these lynchings and they're, and, you know, they're trying to say people were hanging themselves. You're not telling me that these black people are now randomly just going out here hanging themselves. From a tree. From a tree. Yeah. I mean, that, in your past that, you know, your races went through some those images are embedded in there. That's what we're going to decide to do. If you decide you're going to kill yourself, you go, I'm going to hang myself by a tree. Makes no sense. That's what I mean. So things like that. You have to be the change. You know, we just have to stay consistent and keep keep pressing on. on it. it just, we can't let our, our, our foot off the gas now. Right. It's reform. It's reform time. It feels different this time. But to your point, it needs to be persistent, durable change. Right. If you still try to find reasons why this man was killed or justify why he was killed, then there's something wrong with you. Because I don't care what his crime was. I don't care if he had been fighting the police, whatever was going on when we saw him. For those eight minutes and 46 seconds, he was not moving and he was handcuffed. Right. So I got He wasn't combative. You watch the life leave that man's body. Yeah. So if you can look at that and say, well, he shouldn't have had a fake $20 bill. So my life is worth a fake $20 bill. Yeah. How many of us would be dead right now if, if that was uh, an appropriate punishment? Thank you. Thank you. No one's perfect. We've all done things. And if someone looks in their closet or in their family's closet, you're going to find something. Mm-hmm. And- it could, it, it, I guarantee you a lot of it's going to be worse than what you, you said George Floyd did. I've learned we have to have the conversations with our kids of how you have to respond to the police. I don't take it lightly, but the one thing when I've been pulled over, I'm always very calm because there's no reason to be combative. My hands are on the steering wheel, and then I ask them questions. So they'll say, do you have your driver's license and insurance? And I say, yes, I do. My Insurance papers in my glove compartment and my driver's license is in my back pocket. Is it okay if I reach over and get my insurance? And I found that a lot of times we have more, actually some levity and the conversation changes and we both go on about our way. 
But I hope for the day where it's not if I'm reaching for anything that I have to announce what I'm reaching for. Mm-hmm. But it's totally different. If you already walking up to my car with your gun unclicked, un- like, what I had a bad taillight. Is that is that real reason to have a gun ready? I pulled over. I cut off my engine. Where am I going? So it's not our perception like it's we just making up stuff. If you've lived our lives and you went through it, you know it. And that's why I'm happy that I didn't. My sons didn't have to experience what I experienced, but I'm sure that at some point in time they have. And now one of your sons wants to be a police officer. Right. And that's why, though, because the change has to come from within. They're, they're, they're not going to dismantle the police department. We need police. I'm, and everybody's not bad. But when you see the police officer that, that hit the, the guy with the baton, and when he comes out of being charged, all the police are standing outside in their civilian clothes clapping like we support you. If you're not even going to say he's wrong as the police, then, then, then how can we expect you to protect us? Yeah. There was four officers around when George Floyd died. And I mean, it is, and it's not that you have to get explosive with your partner. How much is it the nudge? Like, okay, dude, let's, let's, you know, let's ease up off of this, put in the car. Mm-hmm. Nobody else had to hear that. Right, right. But nobody thought that, okay, this is wrong. That's where it's, that's where society got finally got mad at. Because you see firsthand, if there was no, no video footage of that, he would have been dead and the officer would have been justified. Yeah, yeah. Certainly cell phones and the prevalence of them and the recordings are a very real component of change because it's bringing visibility and light to these things that have been going on for so, so long. And I, I just, and that's what I'm happy about. I want, I want to see it. And like, my thing is, this: if, if you're not going to be part of the solution, stop being negative towards people who are trying to be, that's trying to make a difference. If you're content on being in your bubble, be in your bubble over there, but you don't, you don't feed it to these kids. Cause these kids won't be like that unless you raise them to be like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I imagine it must be exciting. And, and as you mentioned earlier, you must've been proud to see Alex achieve his goal, knowing that that was his goal to, to get into the NFL, but he must be really, truly proud to see the person and the man that he's become and the character that he has and to be the type of person that will speak out against injustice. There's nothing that I've been prouder of going through the journey with him thus far. And when I get a phone call from a friend who lives in Arizona, and they mentioned Alex or Boise or something. And the person speaks about Alex's character as a person far above his football. So when people, yes, I play football, but what am I past the football player? When people speak of that before they speak of your football, then you know that the person he's becoming is the person that you, you raised and that, that you did right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had a few relatively quick closing questions. The first one's pretty straightforward. Is there advice that you would give to other fathers, either fathers of kids who want to pursue a career in football or to fathers in general? Find the passion that your children want and feed it. And they're going to go through multiple things that they think they want to do. And then they lose interest. My one son, he he acted like he wanted to play soccer, but I bought him a soccer ball. And when I would come home, I'd always be sitting out front. I said, why aren't you playing with the soccer ball? Well, I practice it. And at school, I said, but if you're trying to be good and this is what you want to do, you will practice when you get home, too. So once you learn that that's not their interest, you can't be mad at them if they decide they don't want to do it. Because a lot of times we try to live vicariously through our kids. If I was a football player and I didn't make it to that next level, I'm going to push my son that much harder because I want him to make it to that next level. And what that does is rob the passion from them. Feed them on what they want to do. If they decide they don't want to do it no more, 
tell them it's okay, and we'll go on to the next thing until they find something that interests them and they want to stay with it. But never force anything that you wanted to do as a kid on your kids because you're trying to make up for what you didn't do and never not feed something that they tell you they're interested in, even if it's only for a short time. That is fantastic advice. Is there is there anything else that we didn't touch on that you think might be helpful to share with other fathers that are well, We touched on mostly everything that I thought we were going to touch on, but more so than anything, my father was, was a little harder. And I remember I used to be like Cato to, to him when he had come home and I like the Pink Panther or I'd hide. And then I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd jump out on him and try to hug him because being raised by my grandmother, there was a lot of hugging and a lot of kissing, a lot of genuine love. And when I lived with my dad, he wasn't lovey-dovey like that. So I started being more standoffish because he's like, get off me. I don't do that. And so I'm like, okay, well, maybe men don't do this. So as I got older and I had my own sons, I realized that that was still one of my my weaknesses. So I would have to think early on, you need to tell your son you love him or hug your sons because it wasn't something that I was used to doing anymore. Their mother did that because she's very compassionate and loving. So I had to think about it. So even if it's not natural to you or if it doesn't feel comfortable to you, hug your children, kiss them, tell them you love them and you're proud of them because there's nothing more that they want to hear that they made their parents proud. That is wonderful advice and I think a fantastic note to close on as well. Darrell, it, it has been really a pleasure talking with you. You're a fascinating individual. You are obviously an excellent father. Excited for you, for the prospects that all of your boys have in their future and to see how things play out for Alex in this upcoming season. Indeed. I appreciate your time. I'm, I'm glad I got a chance to do this. And if if it reaches anybody or it teaches someone something that someone didn't teach me or that I had to bump my head a couple of times to learn, then uh, this was worth it. I think it surely will. Thank you, Darrell. Appreciate it. And uh, have a great evening. All right. You too. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider taking a moment to post a review on iTunes. It only takes a minute and it helps the podcast appear higher on search results, which makes it easier for other fathers to find. We'd love to hear from you, so if you have a guest idea, feedback, or just want to reach out and say hello, send us a note at info, I-N-F-O, at fatheringexcellence.com, or use the contact form on our website. Most importantly, remember to spend some time today with your child. It goes by in the blink of an eye. Thank you.